Listener Production. Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to Come Out Wherever You Are, a podcast about the coming out experience told by the people who have done it. Today's episode is a little bit different. Rather than focusing on the coming out story of our guest, we are going to be discussing a buffet of queer issues with one of the most respected speakers in our community. Today, we are blessed, truly, I am extremely honored to have one of the most prolific gay epidemics and activists on the planet. No joke on this podcast today, Dennis Altman. Dennis is arguably one of the most influential Australians alive. There, I said it. That's a fact. He has dedicated his entire career to thinking, speaking about, and shaping the gay liberation movement for humans all over the world publishing 13 books since the 1970s, many of which are frequently hailed as necessary literature for anyone interested in our history, our sex lives, and the intellectual theories that surround it. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. I like the idea that my books might help improve people's sex lives. (laughs) I've never thought of myself as a sex therapist. It's funny. I just finished reading Unrequited Love, and obviously it's by no means a sex book, but because you do talk about sex and you allow me, someone who did not live in specific decades or eras, to have a trip down memory lane through the lens of sex— my appreciation for sex or liberation today changes, and therefore you are assisting my sex life. Good. Well, I'm I'm happy for you, and I guess I should also be happy for your husband. There we go. Today we're going to talk about AIDS, so let's just dive right in. In your book, Unrequited Love, you write about where you were when AIDS first emerged. Can you share with us the first time you heard about it, and as a gay man, were you immediately aware of the severity? Well, I lived in New York in the early 1980s, and I have vague memories of hearing stories that were coming out first from LA and then from New York of this new rather scary disease where young men were showing up with symptoms that usually would only be found in people 30 or 40 years older. Mm. Uh, Of course, the first term that was coined to cover this new uh, infection was GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And one of the first political acts of the movement in the early 80s in the US was to get that name changed. Mm. So I do have memories of that. I certainly have memories of the fear. Um, This is, of course, before we knew that HIV was the cause of AIDS, which meant that nobody could be tested so that any time you woke up with a sore throat or a blemish on the skin, Boom. one was scared. And yeah. there is a parallel, isn't there, to waking up with a sore throat in the COVID era mm. uh, where people also freaked out. Um, so I have a lot of memories of New York in the early 80s, uh, a lot of memories of the people who were crucial in the first stages. And I think what I really want to stress, Sean, is there was a lot of activism and a lot of activity before ACT UP because there tends to be this rewriting of history which somehow assumes nothing happened until ACT UP came along. It actually took five or six years for that mm. to occur. Yeah. I'm going to jump in here and explain a bit more about ACT UP, which stands for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. 
They were formed in the late 80s, and they are a grassroots political group that was and is still working to end the AIDS pandemic. You popped back and forth from America to Australia, and you've written passionately about American homosexuals. That's how I was introduced to you from like an American queer history perspective. You're living in America, but obviously, I imagine your heart and your family and your soul and a lot of your friends are back in Australia. Were you concerned for Australia? Like, did you anticipate that it would spread? Was that an idea in your head or was it isolated maybe in your brain to just a couple other countries? And did you want to like alert Australia? How did that work? <laughs> um, I don't think that, I mean, I can't remember, to be honest. Okay. I, I, I think it was pretty clear early on that um, AIDS was going to spread. Uh, and of course, the male gay population of rich countries by mm. the 1980s was pretty mobile. Um, there was in Sydney this this fascination, certainly with San Francisco to a lesser extent with New York. So a lot of people I knew would have travelled backwards and forwards. So, of course, I was aware that AIDS was likely to spread. And, in fact, um, one of the things that I was involved in early on was the then Australian Health Minister, Neil Blewett, mm. who was responsible for Australia having one of the best early responses anywhere, uh, came to San Francisco in, I think, uh, 84 probably, 83 or 84, I can't remember, and um, I helped look after Neil in San Francisco um, and introduced him to a number of people whom I knew, it would have been 84, I think, uh, in the AIDS world there. Mm. I've interviewed a couple guests on this show who were in Australia, and some of which were working in the medical practice at the time. And it's so interesting to hear the perspective of Americans who are living in America as the news is coming out. Uh, they're being made aware. And then there's Aussies who are maybe getting telegrams saying, hey, there's this thing happening in America. And some of our guests have said, as long as you didn't fuck an American man, you were they thought they were safe in their heads. So they're like, anyone who's been to America, don't sleep with them and you're good to go. And obviously that was not yeah, I the don't, case. Uh, I don't, I'm surprised you're hearing that. That was certainly the attitude in other parts of the world. Mm. Um, Japanese gay bars banned white men essentially for that reason. But I don't actually recall that. Mind you, I didn't come back to live in Australia until 1985, mm. So, by which time I think uh, we knew there was a local epidemic. Uh, so it may well be that in the time I was living in the States, people did have this attitude. Um, I have to say I have no memory as someone who had been living in the US of anybody saying to me, we can't have sex because you've lived in the States. <laughs> but it's possible. It's a good line. I will remember it for future use. <laughs> in those early days, you've written about some of the restrictions that were put on gay sex. This was really interesting for me in particular because monkeypox has just occurred. And when I'm reading your book and I'm thinking back to that time where, you know, people were going to sex clubs or parties and they, they weren't kissing or there were specific restrictions put on them. And I don't mean literally, but sometimes just advice that was given or maybe um, someone who is managing this bar would have flashlights on you all and they would be checking yeah, people. Yeah, sure, and it, it, was, it was actually pretty literal. Um, I mean, jack-off clubs developed in New York and San Francisco fairly early on mm. because they allowed people to have sex without physical contact. And you're right, there, there would be monitors with flashlights who would go around and if they saw men kissing would tell them to separate. Um 
there was, I think, a great difference between what happened in the US and what happened here. Yeah, what and was it's, it? Well, I think it's summed up by the fact that in the US, uh, well, in Australia, firstly, we had a federal government mm. that very quickly understood it should work with the affected communities, primarily gay men. But remember also, the first and most affected community were men with haemophilia mm. who a large number of whom died because they had been given blood transfusions with yeah. infected blood. I mean, this is before we knew HIV, what HIV was, so there was no way of testing blood to see if it might infect someone. Um, but I think the difference was partly at a political level. We had a very responsive government. The United States had Ronald Reagan. I don't need to say more than that, I think. <laughs> no. <laughs> the other difference is that at a local level, the Australian authorities recognise that there was actually an advantage to keeping saunas and sex clubs open yeah. because that was a good place to reach people with information. In the US, there was a mixed reaction, but in the big cities, particularly in New York and San Fran, the city authorities closed the bathhouses. Yep. And I think that this probably meant a greater, certainly there was far less information because unlike Australia, the governments were very, very wary of giving out information. Uh, and of course, they were very wary of things that could be done that would slow the spread of HIV, most particularly, I think, needle exchanges. We yeah. got needle exchanges in Australia very quickly. It's took parts of the United States 20 years, I think, to get to the point where they were willing to admit that whatever they thought about it, and we know Nancy Reagan said just say no, mm. which is not a bad line, by the way, but it's not very useful. <laughs> Good marketing. Um, <laughs> 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 so um, the United States saw a major epidemic among people caused by sharing needles, which we escaped in Australia. Mm. I guess I had never thought about like access to information, but also access to contraception. Like in Australia, you know, having condoms that were being pushed into all of these places meant that people were more likely to be safe. But if you're pushed underground because there aren't access to those locations, maybe you're more likely to make a mistake or more likely to get sick, uh, which is fascinating in retrospect through the lens of monkeypox. And I guess one of the things that came up for me was having lived through. HIV AIDS, and then seeing governments when monkeypox started, that conversation started to happen globally. And all of a sudden you have these governments, including America, disagreeing with each other, saying abstinence is the only way. The gay community must stop sleeping with anyone until we have more information. And then you have all these activists who have survived and put all of their energy and focus into making sure we don't repeat the same mistakes again, going, we know abstinent education doesn't work. We know that if you say don't have sex, what's going to happen? People are going to find other ways. People are going to get out there and they're going to make, I don't know, silly mistakes. And but I'm of course, there, there are two significant differences. One is you don't die from monkeypox. Yeah. It's pretty nasty if you don't die on mm -hmm. the whole. And secondly, there was an available vaccine. And that is, of course, very different. Um, totally. One of the striking things about HIV is we still don't have a vaccine. And I have a memory. I went to the very first so-called International AIDS Conference. Yep. It was essentially a US conference with a few people from overseas in Atlanta mm. in 1985. But that's, hey, that's what Americans call international anyway. And um, <laughs> yes. I can remember Reagan's Secretary of Health 
then saying we will have a vaccine within two years. Yeah. That was in 1985. And here we are in 2022, we don't have a vaccine. Mm. Whereas with monkeypox, there was a vaccine available. And I don't know what happened in the US. Certainly in Australia, the government, I think, rolled it out very carefully. There were limited supplies and they made very clear that they would go to practices and community organisations that had a significant gay clientele. Mm. So, you know, we're now in a period where monkeypox is, as far as I know, in most countries declining anyway. I think that, yes, there are some parallels, but it certainly was not the sort of major global epidemic Mm. that uh, HIV turned out to be. No, you're totally right. I am interested, I guess, as someone who has had their sex life under a microscope as long as I've been alive, because my you know, I'm obviously younger, come up into my sexual identity uh, in the 90s. And all of a sudden, I have family members and great grandparents and relatives who feel that they have a right to talk about my sex life, or they have an understanding of my sex life, because they, they know what our community does. And therefore, they can talk to me about it. I come out to my grandmother, what's the first thing she says, you need to wear protection, you need to be careful of AIDS, like, boom, you know, all of a sudden, the way that I have sex is up to other people's discussion. And I found that with monkeypox, all of a sudden, straight people were randomly talking about my sex life again, as if they had a right to because of a global conversation about a virus or about medication. And that has always been confusing to me. Yes, I, I would. Be, I am still wary of the comparison. I, I think that, um, yes, there are some parallels, but monkeypox seems to me in at least rich countries has come and gone. Yeah, um, true. And could be dealt with. It could be dealt with. It can be treated. Mm. As I say, it's nasty if you don't die and you can get a vaccine. Um, that doesn't actually, and, and but where there is, I think, a real parallel is that that doesn't apply to monkeypox in sub-Saharan Africa, yes. where, of course, it's existed as an issue for far longer. Mm. And there's a parallel with AIDS. We in the Western world think AIDS is over because we have the medical, biomedical resources to deal with it. But AIDS is not over, and it's still a major issue in a number of poorer countries where there are not access to antiretrovirals, there's not access to PrEP, etc. I find that a lot of um, straight people feel like it's important for them to support our community. And I was wondering if it felt that way as you were living through the AIDS and HIV crisis. Did you feel the support of straight women? Did you feel the support of straight men? Was this an issue that was just our problem or a problem that they felt they needed to be involved in somehow? Okay, well, I'm going to actually make two points. Firstly, directly answering the question, there were, of course, a number of very crucial uh, people who were not part of the community, um, some of whom were, were celebrities, like Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Elizabeth Taylor was an important figure because she had this charisma um, and, you know, in a sense, Princess Diana. Yeah. So, of course, there were very many people. But the point I want to make is I actually find this insistence in our contemporary movement of talking about allies rather odd. Um, The women's movement doesn't constantly carry on about men as who are allies. Mm. The indigenous movement does not claim that white people should march at the front. And there is, I mean, I have this memory years ago of going up to Bendigo for a, I guess it was a queer pride event, or it was a week, 
uh, at the La Trobe University campus in Bendigo, and there was a raising of the the rainbow flag, mm -hmm. and the flag was raised by the local Labor member who was a straight woman. And I remember thinking, no Indigenous celebration would ask a non-Indigenous person to raise the flag. Yeah, that's true. No women's celebration would ask a man to raise the flag. I think this insistence on allies has gone far too far. Mm. And I think we see it in Mardi Gras where all sorts of commercial floats get to go in the front of the parade ahead of genuine queer communities. And I think that's really, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. But as I say, I think that there's a sense in which this constant search to be reaffirmed by allies is actually uh, undermining mm. the possibility of a genuinely queer movement. Ooh, I love this. It is stretching my mind. I guess I had thought, maybe naively, that at that time in particular, people, the, a majority of people in power who had a, could make a change were straight and therefore it was crucial to have access to them oh, or a connection. Oh, of course they were crucial. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. And, you know, if, um, if you go back, look, Sean, I forget a lot of the stuff I've written. If I go back to the book I wrote in 1985, yeah. AIDS in the Mind of America, which yeah. got republished here as AIDS of the New Puritanism, I know that I talk quite a lot about a couple of really crucial members of the US Congress, uh, one from LA, one from New York, who were really important at a time when the Reagan administration was trying to deny the importance of the new epidemic. I mean, there's no question, you know, if we look at the history of the epidemic, most of the crucial biomedical discoveries, mm. much of the crucial advocacy, of course, has come from people who are not gay. Um, but that is, I think, a rather different issue to whether they should be thought of as part of our movement yeah. or whether they are, in fact, supporters of our movement. And that's the distinction that I think we lose when we tack A onto every other letter of the alphabet we can find and claim that somehow they're equivalent mm. uh, as part of a community. They're not. They're supporters, just as I'm a strong supporter of Indigenous Australians. But I would not expect to march in something that was a celebration of indigeneity. I'm going to pivot from HIV. You have spoken openly about your support for refugees. Talk to me a little bit about why you are so passionate about this issue. The groups that I find most exciting and interesting currently in Australia, in the queer world, are groups working with and led by people who have come here seeking asylum as refugees mm. uh, because of their sexuality and their gender identity, often people who can't speak publicly because they don't have uh, full citizenship or they don't have permanent residency, where I think Australia has a really bad record. Uh, we have an appalling history over the last 10 years of our response to asylum seekers. We pioneered offshore detention which sadly the British Tories and the right wing in, De in Denmark have grabbed onto as a solution. Uh, and that to me is, is the most important area where certainly we do need support. We need support from everybody. And I'd say we need, first of all, support from the big queer organisations who by and large have a pretty crappy record. You know, they're much better at organising big fundraising parties that cost hundreds of dollars than they are at responding to the reality of people who are desperate and on constantly facing the possibility of being deported. There you are. That's my political spiel for today. 
That's a great political spear. I think if that's what you want to talk about, let's talk about it. Is the government doing anything at all in its current form to address this? Have people stepped forward and attempted to make a change or policy changes at all? The Labour Party before the election promised to increase the numbers of refugee, the the quota for refugee intake into Australia. And as far as I know, they haven't yet done that. Mm. Uh, It doesn't appear in the budget. Sadly, the budget does provide more money for offshore detention, uh, which I think is is tragic. Mm. But where... There certainly have been some changes. I mean, there have been years now of work to try and get the processes whereby people establish their need for asylum to be more understanding. Often, you see, people, people seeking asylum will go before a tribunal and they will be interviewed. And people have been knocked back because they don't conform to very narrow Western stereotypes of what being gay or lesbian or trans ought to look like. Mm. And a lot of work has gone on around that. There are now three or four really interesting groups working on the ground with people who are in Australia, often, as I say, on very temporary and impermanent uh, visas, um, and they need money, they need support. And um, uh, most of, you know, in as far as I've been politically active in the last few years, it's been very much working particularly with two groups, uh, Three for All, which runs an extraordinary drop-in centre for uh, queer refugees in Melbourne, Mm -hmm. just luckily... Uh, just down the road from here, so I can I can go there quite easily, um, and the Forcibly Displaced People's Network, which is essentially run by, or in both cases, run by people who are themselves uh, asylum seekers slash refugees, and there is grad- and there is certainly a growing awareness in the refugee world. The large, you know, in the larger refugee organisations, in the Refugee Council of Australia, that these are issues that need to be addressed now. Mm. I have no doubt that the current minister, whom I like and respect for immigration, is is on side. Um, But it's going to take a long time for this to work through the system and for Australia to actually be known as a safe place uh, to which people can seek refuge. And I think we're going to see more people in the next few years, many more people, who are going to have to leave their countries because of their sexuality or their gender identity. And I would like to see Australia be known as a safe haven that welcomes these people. Mm. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time in America and abroad. Do you think of Australia as a supportive place? The reason I'm asking, I'm projecting a little bit. When I lived abroad, I just thought of Sydney as really accepting because Mardi Gras, right? You just hear about it from abroad, that it's a fun place to go out and they do a good job with a parade once a year. And then I moved here and it definitely felt like there was less of this community binding together to make a change. You've lived through many a decades. How is Australia currently in its uh, global footprint of respect for queer people? I think pretty good. I mean, look, the the one measurement we have, which is, you know, a much more effective measurement than Mardi Gras, mm. is the vote on same-sex marriage. Right. And the vote on same-sex marriage is very interesting because over 60% of Australians in what turned out to be essentially a referendum masquerading as a, as a voluntary postal vote mm. um, 
the support was very interesting because some of the areas of Australia that we thought of as the most homophobic, such as the northwest coast of Tasmania or the coastal towns in Queensland, actually voted yes. Uh, so I think that there are a few countries in the world, sadly, where I think you would get that extent of popular support. And it wasn't just, it became more than a referendum on marriage. It became essentially a referendum on acceptance. Mm. So I take from that um, a lot of comfort. Uh, I, I think that um, we don't really have in Australia what you're now seeing in the United States, what you saw in Brazil, which I hope now will, will change with the re-election of Lula, what you've seen in a number of European countries, which is significant right-wing political figures using queer bashing as mm. part of their appeal. Yeah. Um, there are certainly people in the conservative parties here who are attracted to that, but by and large, they're being put aside by the leadership. And, of course, in the last election we saw Scott Morrison uh, dig up a deeply transphobic candidate in Warringah uh, and she went down to a crushing defeat. Mm. Uh, so I think that uh, on balance, on the data we have, Australia is doing reasonably well. Those are great yardsticks. Can I ask you about marriage? Ask me about marriage. Yeah. Uh, look, I've always, been, I've always, I was a deep cynic about marriage. I mean, I've never understood why people feel the need to get the blessing of the church and the state mm. uh, to ratify their relationship. During the marriage campaign, I had great fun because I was, uh, for some reason, I was on Joy FM every week on the marriage show. Yeah. And I was deeply ironic and cynical, and nobody picked it up because irony is not something that our community is very good at, I'm <laughs> You're afraid. You're right. You're totally right. There was no question. We had to campaign for a yes vote because a yes vote, as I say, was, was about much more than marriage. It was mm. about acceptance. And I'd also point out that in many countries, including yours, including the United States, uh, marriage actually is important in a way it's not here because in the United States, things like health benefits yeah. are tied to uh, your status in a way they're not here. The difference is that in Australia, we had very strong recognition of de facto relationships. Mm -hmm. My partner died 10 years ago. Uh, of course, this is long before marriage. Uh, we had no... Um, I thought we had no official recognition, but in fact, after he died, everybody treated me as if we had been married. Yeah. And so things like superannuation, the bank, uh, all of it flowed to me exactly as if we had been mm. uh, a married couple. Now, that is not the case in most parts of the world. De facto relationships are not recognised in the way they have been here. So I, I would understand in the United States why marriage is important. It was important for immigration, it was important for Medicare, it was important for a whole lot of reasons. I also understand why for many people who come from conservative families, marriage is very important mm -hmm. because it's a way of making a point to their families uh, about acceptance. So, you know, while I'm cynical, I'm not cynical about it for other people. Mm -hmm. I'm cynical about it for myself. Sean, you and I live in, in a bubble, let's face it. Yes. We are talking very much about a first world problem for people living in the inner city. Yeah. I 
would like to land on something, and, and you can just say no if you don't feel comfortable. But one of my favorite lines from your book, it was completely unexpected. I don't even think you thought about it. It's maybe a smaller throwaway line is, how does one choose to remember? And it just stuck with me for like three days. I kept going back to like, well, how do we choose? Who do we remember? Is it the person with the most interesting story who died? Is it the person who put the most effort into uh, the movement? Are they, are they the ones? And I thought it might be fun as a way to close because it is, you know, this episode's going out on World AIDS Day. There have been so many beautiful people in your life that, uh, as you say, um, you know, didn't get to grow old with you. Terry, Michael, Barry. And I just thought it might be a, a fun way for people on this day when we're trying to raise awareness about what activists care about today. Is there a story you'd love to share about someone in particular that we can kind of land on and people can go away and think about what happened? It, it's a really good question. I think that, um, I think I asked that question in terms of, given the number of people I had known who died of HIV, mm. who did I choose to write about? And I think the person I would probably feel most sentimental about is a guy called Robert Aris. Mm. Now, Robert was one of the founders of the People with AIDS movement in Sydney uh, in the early 80s. And Robert and I sat together on one of the National Government Advisory Committees, and I got to know Robert very well. Mm. Robert has actually written a book, uh, so if people are interested, um, if you give me a... I, I can't remember the title of the book, but I, but we can find it very quickly. It's yeah. Robert Aris, A-R-I-S-S, I think. Um, and what I remember, and I'm going to end with something rather sad, is I remember a hastily organised funeral mm. for Robert at which a couple of people got up and spoke, and I suddenly thought, shit, I knew him better than they did. And wow. I've always regretted that I didn't just stand up and say, look, I knew Robert in a way you didn't. Mm. But the memory that does remain with me is the way in which his parents very sheepishly crept in and crept out of, I think it was in a chapel at one of the crematoria, clearly deeply uncomfortable in the world that they found themselves. Mm. And I end with that because very recently I met a guy, I've just come back from Europe, I met a guy in Milan, a professional man in his early 40s who told me he wasn't out to anyone. And he actually said, and I found this quite mind-blowing, yes, he said, I have gay friends, but they don't know I'm one of them. And that to me was, you know, that somebody in a very modern, city in a rich country in 2022 is still so closeted that he can't even come out to his gay friends wow. is, I think, a reminder that some of the things your program talks about um, haven't changed that much, at least for some people in 50 years. Oh, you're so right. One of the lines you wrote in your book that really stuck with me is that we don't get to learn about gayness from our parent. Like we're born as an individual. We don't have that culture that connects us all together in our family tree. And so we're not able to necessarily connect to from a young age or learn from other people that have our blood that we're surrounded by on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And it was, it felt like a, even though you wrote it a long time ago, felt like a very new concept as far as when we talk about coming out. Um, And I guess that line, even though it's sad, is a reminder of why representation is so damn important. Because if people don't have access to those people, if they can't come out to their friends, if they don't feel like they can talk to their parents about it, seeing another voice or a face or someone out there who is proud or comfortable or living a good life, that might be the glimmer of hope that makes them feel connected to us in a bigger way. I think I should send the guy in Milan a link to Heartbreak High. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) you absolutely should. Have you watched Heartbreak High? I've watched a couple of episodes. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate getting a chance to talk to you. Thank you for sharing and... Sure. Good to meet you. You as well. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Okay. Ciao. Cheers. Okay. We are back. How are you going? How are you feeling? If this episode left you wanting more information about our wonderful LGBTQIA plus alphabet, then you should check out Minus 18. They're Australia's LGBTQIA plus charity. They have heaps of resources on their website and they run trainings for workplaces and classrooms. Minus 18 are on all socials at minus 18 youth and their website is minus 18.org.au. But minus 18 isn't a helpline. So if you're looking for support, you can call QLife on 1-800-184-527 for free every day from 3 p.m. till midnight. If you're feeling anxious and not up to talking on the phone, they also have web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. Their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be a part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can slide into our DMs on Instagram at Come Out Wherever You Are. You can also follow me at Sean Zeps. That's S-E-A-N-S-Z-E-P-S. Come Out Wherever You Are is presented by me, Sean Zeps. Our lovely producer is... Lindsay Grain. Our executive producer is... Lemma Bacharia. And we can't forget our audio producer... Chris Marsh. See you soon.